Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. team. I appreciate everybody that helps make Vertical Life Church happen. If you serve in a ministry from our connections table to our nursery to our, our kids ministry, uh, we just appreciate you so much. We couldn't do it without you. And uh, we're excited that God is um, not just bringing this year to a close, but bringing us into a new year. And we're excited for what's coming in the new year. Are you excited for what's coming in 2022? Yes, I mean, after 2020, it can only get better, right? Maybe, hopefully, we wish, we pray, we cry. So uh, I know if you're a Michigan fan, you're probably having a great 2021. Amen. Yes, we're going to keep praying for our boys in maize and blue, that uh, God's favor be upon them. If you're a state fan, I'm sorry, but you still got the victory over them, so you have something to hold on to this year. Uh, We are in... uh, Week two of our series, The Journey, uh, just as uh, Scott was saying on December 19th, that's going to be Ugly Sweater Christmas Day. It's going to be our family Christmas Day. We're going to have a combined service in here, so there will not be any nursery because we want you to bring your little kids in here. It's going to be fun. We're going to be singing Christmas carols. We'll have glow sticks for the kids. We'll read the Christmas story and have some uh, you know, sugary treats to send them home with. And So it's always a lot of fun to bring in the new year. So invite your friends and family if you're a parent, this would be a time for you to bring your camera. If you're a grandparent, charge your phone and uh, have your camera ready, and uh, it'll be a great time to, uh, to celebrate together. Last week, I just thought it was awesome that we got to begin diving into the story that we have probably all heard multiple times. It's the same story every year. If you think of Christmas and you're a believer in Jesus, you probably get a manger scene in your head, a nativity set in your head. That's what you think of. Uh, our family just went to Bronner's last night. It's our fam- one of our family traditions to get kind of dressed up and go to Bronner's. We don't really ever buy anything but maybe some candy. We just walk around and look at the, the decorations and, and uh, the Christmas stuff. And I don't think they've changed anything and since they opened. Uh, it's like the same stuff every year, but it's just fun to go out there. And, and, uh, but I guess this year, if you want to meet Santa, you have to Zoom him from the North Pole. He's not really doing in person. He's, he's too, uh, too fearful of COVID. And I'm thinking if the spirit of Christmas with magical powers are afraid of COVID, we're all in trouble. Right? So uh, you got to Zoom Santa. But uh, it's just the part of the season. It just really brings out that Christmas spirit. And as we look into the story of Christmas, rather than just reading it as usual, we're kind of diving in to see the, the journey that some of these characters that we hear about every year really took before they met Jesus and the impact Jesus had on their lives. Because if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, beloved, if he did it for one, he can do it again. And he will do it again. And, and last week, we saw the life of Zechariah, how he was a devoutly religious guy. But when it came to his spiritual life, religion is really all he had. He was an old man. He had been in this religious system for so long. And when God called him to put his faith into action, he was found wanting. Because he was trusting in a system of action, a system of law, a heritage of Jewish descent rather than the God he was supposed to be worshiping. 
And we saw that Jesus, even as an infant child, set him free from being bound to religious thinking and opened him up to a life of faith. Raising this man who would be the father of the prophet of the Messiah, the forerunner of the Messiah, raised him up to be a prophet himself as he heard and spoke for God. Opened him up to a life of faith and the Holy Spirit moved in his life in a powerful way. And and what that really shows us is that no matter how routine our spiritual life is, how hopeless maybe we are that anything in our lives will change or can change, that discontented feeling. I don't know if you've you felt this way. I felt like this uh, many times years years ago. I just felt like being grown up in church, Sunday after Sunday, ministry after ministry, just feeling like there's got to be something more to this than just going to church on Sunday. And being involved. Like, there's got to be something more. And what Jesus showed us last week in Zechariah's life is there is something more to a person who's walking in faith, being led of the Holy Spirit. Religion falls flat every time. God is calling us into a relationship to trust him by faith because he's pursuing our hearts to set us free and release us into the greatest journey we can ever take in our lives, the journey with Jesus Christ discovering who we were always meant to be. And what we'll discover as we put religion aside and embrace a true faith in Christ, a relationship with Jesus, is we'll discover God isn't constantly mad at us, waiting for us to mess up so he can strike us down. But rather, he is a good God who wants us to taste and see that the Lord is good. See, Zechariah was the first person Jesus restored. Even before he started his ministry, Jesus restored him from a failure in unbelief to a giant in the faith. And today we're going to look at another famous character. We're going to look at the life of Joseph. He's kind of one of the underrated Christmas characters, right? He's He's not really the focus. He's just the the tag-along in the story. If you lose him in your nativity scene, you're not really upset because you still got Mother Mary and baby Jesus. And the sheep. The sheep are important, too. They're the cute ones. I know some of those nativity scenes are kind of creepy. I don't know if we need to anoint them with oil or something. But Joseph is the first person. If Zechariah is the first person Jesus restores, Joseph is the first person Jesus delivers from a curse that was put on his life to fulfill a long-awaited destiny. See, again, all of this is happening, when you open the New Testament, all of this is happening after what scholars call the 400 years of silence. It's been 400 years since God spoke in the nation of Israel. Just just think about that. Uh, Think of you, you have this encounter with God. God calls you into something. You're hearing his voice. And then heaven goes silent. And doesn't just stop talking to you. He doesn't talk to 400 generations. 400 years of people crying out to God for deliverance, for mercy, for provision. For God to just speak and remind the people that he's still there watching over the people. And nothing. No prophet. No word from God. All they had was what was written before. It'd be very difficult to hold on to your faith. And beloved, you might be praying for something right now. You see, what Zechariah's story reminds us, and now with the coming of Jesus, years 
after these 400 years of silence, after 400 years of tears and prayers to God to save his people, what we begin to see in the story of Jesus' birth is though God may be deaf or God may be silent, he's never deaf. 400 years, God was silent. And you might be struggling through something right now, praying and praying and praying. But what we see at the beginning pages of the story is that God might be silent in your situation, but he's never deaf. Psalm 12, 5, it says, The Lord replies, I've seen violence done to the helpless, and I've heard the groans of the poor. Now I will rise up to rescue them as they have longed for me to do. Think about this psalm, this, this cry of the psalmist, this cry of the poor. Think about... He says, how long they've longed for me to deliver them. How long do the poor have to groan before it moves from complaining to longing? How long do you have to struggle and be in the mess before your groans, your cries to God, go from just complaining about your situation to longing for redemption? And yet God says, now I will rise up. Sometimes we're in the struggle for a while until the rescue moves from discomfort to des desperation, until the rescue is prolonged and we move from that place of discomfort to desperation. But beloved, God is still in the mix even though he seems so far away. Psalm 121 verse 4 says, Indeed, he who watches over Israel never sleeps nor slumbers. So right now in your circumstance, you might feel like God is not listening. God is not near. God's not paying attention. But beloved, God is more near than you could possibly understand. He's still in the mix. He's still in the middle of your struggle. And he's planning your redemption, your rescue even now. And at the right time, you will see the glory of the Lord. And this is what's happening in this moment. As we look at Joseph's life, again, 400 years of silence God makes a major move. He chooses Mary to be the mother of Jesus. And he's, she's married or betrothed to a man the Bible calls a righteous man, virtuous and honorable. He cares about the will of God. He loves the Lord faithfully. So Mary is espoused or engaged to be Joseph's wife. And in this culture, in ancient times, uh, in this culture, when two people enter into an, an engagement, it's like they're actually married. It's the legal contract between the, the, the groom-to-be and the bride's father and the bride. So they are legally married even though they're not living together, enjoying all the fruits of marriage. It, the relationship has been initiated. They are considered married. And it will be about a year after the engagement when the groom-to-be prepares his house to, ready to receive his bride that he goes and collects his bride. They have a celebration. They consummate the marriage. And they are united completely. So they're in this, this betrothal period of time where they are legally married. They're just not relationally together in a physical sense. So when the angel appears to Mary and she becomes pregnant by the power of the Spirit, she returns, as we saw last week, she goes to visit Zechariah and Elizabeth for a time. When she returns, Joseph finds out about the pregnancy and has rocked with the reality that his wife is pregnant with someone else's baby. Feel that for a minute. We're married. You take a little vacation and you come back and you're months pregnant. 
I can imagine that he was rocked, one, because thoughts of his wife being unfaithful, or two, that she had been taken advantage of someone, by someone. Either way was not a good situation. And the difficulty in this culture in this time is when that was to take place, regardless if it was her fault or not, that would have made her, in, in the social circumstances, unfit for marriage. So now this righteous man, this, this virtuous man, he's got a dilemma on his hands. Either way is not good. So needless to say, he was devastated. And I believe Joseph probably loved Mary deeply, probably really cared for her because rather than using his legal right to accuse her of adultery, which would have led to her certain death, if he had made a public example of her, she would have been stoned in the street. This is how serious this was for Mary. But he decides to end the engagement privately, trying to save face for everyone involved as much as possible. And so he's debating this in his mind, what he's going to do. He's overwhelmed with just the circumstance. You can imagine the shock of that revelation and then going home to your house and trying to fall asleep that night. You can imagine your mind racing and just like being overwhelmed with the anguish of the circumstance. And somehow he's able to fall asleep. And as he's sleeping, an angel comes and visits him in a dream. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 24, it says, As he considered this, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Somebody say, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you're to name him Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through the prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Then Joseph woke up and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. Again, we, when we read these stories, especially we read them over and over again, we, we tend to sanitize the story. But think about this for a minute. My wife's pregnant by somebody else. I'm freaking out. I have this dream. The angel says, it's God's baby. I don't know I'm feeling any better. Because she's still pregnant with someone else's child. And it's God's baby. What do I do with that? I mean, think, think about it. Like, how overwhelming. But what's he do? He gets up and he obeys faithfully. So that's an awesome thing. But what I find interesting is that the angel doesn't say, don't be afraid of me, like he did when he appeared to Zechariah in the temple. Do you remember? He appeared, and Zechariah's freaking out. He's like, oh my gosh. And he's like, no, don't be afraid. I bring you good tidings. He doesn't say, don't be afraid of me, to Joseph. He says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. So why would Joseph, who did nothing wrong, be afraid to take Mary as his wife? Do you think it would be simply due to maybe the public shame of people thinking it was really his baby? They just didn't do things socially correct or religiously correct, that he did something unholy? Maybe. Or maybe there was something a little deeper going on. This is why you need to know your Bible. 
It's amazing what God reveals through the scripture. You see, in the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, as Matthew is recording the story of Christ's birth, he opens in Matthew chapter 1 with a genealogy, a written record of all the descendants of Jesus Christ. And he does it for a specific purpose, to link Jesus to David or King David, which was a qualification to be the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew even tells us right at the beginning, he says, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. He had to come from Abraham to be a Jew, and he had to be from David in order to be qualified to be the Messiah. So Matthew, from the very beginning, is saying, here's the genealogy of Jesus, and I'm giving this to you to show you he is qualified to be the Messiah. In biblical times, your tribal lineage was determined by who your father was. That's why when you read all the boring books of the Old Testament, when it says, this guy begat this guy, who begat this guy, who begat this guy, who did something weird over here, and then these three guys were begotten over here, and, and then they begot over here, and they did a lot of begotten in the Old Testament. Those are the ones you just kind of skip ahead. You're like, okay. You know what I'm saying? Come on. This is, this is real. I know when you open the Chronicles, you're like, oh, thank you, God, but let's get to the exciting part. Let's get to David killing Goliath. This is church. You can't be lying in church. But believe it or not, there's actually some really important stuff in there. See, in biblical times, your lineage came from your father. In today's uh, culture, the rabbinic tradition is that your Jewishness comes from your mother. And they trace that back to one of the prophetic books in the Old Testament. So in Jewish culture, uh, you're, it's important to have a father who's a Jew. That connects you to your tribe. But it's even more important that your mother is a Jew, which makes you Jewish. Because if your mother's a Jew, they know you have Jewish blood. Um, it, your father could be Jewish or not Jewish. But if you're, it's just your father who's known, you might not because your mother may or may not be Jewish. So they, they claim that having a mother who is Jewish makes you a Jew. And then your father being Jewish connects you to your tribe. So it's a, kind of an interesting thing to think about. But what's important about Jesus' lineage in Jeremiah 33, 17, it's important that he's connected to David because there is a specific prophecy that God gives through Jeremiah that makes this mandatory. In Jeremiah 33, 17, it says, This is what the Lord says. David will have a descendant sitting on the throne of Israel forever. So if you're going to rule in Israel, you have to come from David's line. It's not a choice. So he couldn't come from Levi or anywhere else. He had to come from David, from the tribe of Judah. So Matthew is showing us through Joseph, Jesus' adopted father, that Jesus would qualify as an heir of David. But there's only one problem with this genealogy. Joseph's line, though it comes through David, and you can see it right there in the text, Joseph doesn't qualify as a line that can be considered to produce the Messiah. So though Jesus through Joseph comes from David, the tribe of Judah, Joseph isn't qualified to be king nor any of his children. Back in the time of the Old Testament, after David, David had many sons, there were many kings. 
before the exile into Babylon, before God just got tired of their sins and decided to let Babylon come over and take over. Israel had a slew of kings who over and again, it's actually, it grieves my heart when I read it because over and again it says, and this guy came to power and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the next one, and they came to power and they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Over and over again, these kings did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then once in a while, you'd have a king who would be raised up who would honor God with all their heart like King Josiah who decided to try to reform Israel and get rid of the idolatry, get rid of the pagan practices, and bring back the righteous and true worship of God Almighty in the land of Israel. And God blessed Josiah. But Josiah's son didn't follow the pattern of his father. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so did Josiah's grandson. They were wicked kings. And it was through Josiah's grandson that God sent the Babylonians into Israel to conquer it. And in Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 24 through 30, this is what God says through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, As surely as I live, says the Lord, I will abandon you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Even if you were the signet ring on my right hand, I would pull you off. I will hand you over to those who seek to kill you, those you so desperately fear to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and the mighty Babylonian army. I will expel you and your mother from this land and you will die in a foreign country, not in your native land. You will never again return to the land you yearn for. This, why is this man, Jehoiachin, like a discarded broken jar? Why are he and his children to be exiled to a foreign land? Oh, earth, earth, earth. Listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Let the record show that this man Jehoiachin was childless. He is a failure for none of his children. Somebody say none of his children. He's a failure. He's considered childless. For none of his children will succeed him on the throne of David to rule over Judah. God was pretty mad at Jehoiachin that he removed him from the kingly line. Jehoiachin was cursed by God that his line, his bloodline, would not be able to succeed David on the throne. And if we look at Joseph's lineage from David in Matthew chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, we read, Josiah was the father of Jehoiachin and his brothers, born at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the Babylonian exile, Jehoiachin was the father of Sheatil. Sheatil was the father of of Zerubbabel. So though Jesus, through Joseph, was from the line of David, Joseph was a descendant of Jehoiachin. So if Jesus would have been the blood son of Joseph, he would not be valid for the Messiah position. He would not be able to be considered as the king of kings. Think about what that curse on Jehoiachin did to his family line. Think of the stigma the label failure that got passed down from generation to generation. Your line will never qualify for royalty 
ever again. Born to rule, but cursed to be servants. You could have been kings, but instead now, because of the sin of one of your ancestors, you'll be paupers, cursed under the label of their forefather as an eternal failure, a man whose children don't even qualify to pass on his name because to God they're childless. He was childless. To go from ruling over Israel to now being a stain on Israel's history. And here is Joseph, a descendant from Jehoiachin. He was a prince of Israel, born to rule, but cursed to be a blue-collar laborer his whole life. And though he loved God and had to live with the shame of this family curse and the stigma that went along with it, that he was the son of a wicked and failed king, think now why the angel said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Maybe, just maybe, if we put some humanity in the scripture, maybe it was simply because he has spent his entire life trying to come out from underneath the stigma that everyone else has put on him. To come out from underneath his family's reputation. I mean, think about why was he so virtuous and humble? Maybe it's because he wanted to be nothing like those who came before him. And his sense of righteousness may have been motivated by the shame of his family's reputation. I mean, have you ever met someone? I mean, think, think about it. Maybe this is you. You're struggling with this. Have you ever met someone who had a really rough childhood? Maybe they were desperately poor or they were just in a really bad situation. But you can see in their adult life now, they have a driven or a striving nature to succeed, to, to gain wealth, to dress nice, to have all the nice things. Like they have the best phone, the best car, the best clothes. They don't withhold any of these things from themselves. They grew up in poverty, but now they're striving hard to make it in life, to leave their children things that they never had. They almost are obsessed with how they look, making sure they, they look uh, you know, the best they could possibly could. They fit in with everybody in, in culture, that they have what everyone else has because when they were young, they didn't have anything, and they felt like they were less than because of it. When I was young, I didn't have anything. We were poor. We didn't have all this stuff, but we're, we're going to have that now. I'm not going to be like my family was. My family's not going to be like my family. Or maybe you have a family secret and you're so grieved over it that you find yourself spending tons of energy and making personal goals and personal missions for yourself to prove that you are nothing like those in your family. And you try to pretend that you're not connected to them in any kind of way. And you overcompensate for the shame you feel or what you're trying to hide and protect. You see, sometimes people try to prove the stigma that, that they live under 
They, they tried to get so far away from the sins of their past or in their family that they used it as a motivation to become better than those who have come before, to be better than where they came from. Maybe facing this emotional blow of, of Mary now being pregnant by somebody else, finding out that, that she's pregnant with someone else's child, the reason why Joseph was afraid wasn't because like Zechariah, it was just an angel showing up in his dream. Maybe he was afraid because now this situation goes against everything he's been trying to overcome his entire life. Everything I've been striving for, this reputation I've been trying to build as a righteous and holy guy to prove that this curse of my family doesn't apply to me. I'm not like these other people. Now if I take this woman as my, my wife, what are people going to think? They're going to think, that Joseph guy is just like the rest of them. He's no better than his family. Couldn't even... Stay holy. Yeah, that Joseph guy is just as moral as Jehoiachin. And so what did he want to do? He wanted to put her away privately. Again, he could have vindicated himself. He could have said, this was not mine. But I think he desperately loved her. I think he did love her. But he wanted to put her away privately. And maybe part of the motivation was because he didn't want to have this drama brought into the open and being drugged back into the gossip and public disgrace. So what does the angel do? He tells Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because this is a work of God. This is God's doing. And not only is she going to have a son, but you are to name him. Jesus, which means God saves. Think about what's happening. The honor of naming a child comes from a parent. So what is God doing in Joseph's life? He is not only calming his fears about Mary's situation, but he is redeeming his family line in the process. By lifting the curse off of his name. God is keeping true to his word. No blood-born son of Jehoiachin is going to sit on the throne of Israel. But Jesus isn't Joseph's blood relative. He's Joseph's adopted son. And what's also interesting is that after 400 years of silence, after being silent for so long, God begins to give Joseph dreams starts communicating with him in dreams, just like the Joseph in the book of the Old Testament. Remember, Joseph betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, put into prison, rises up to the second in command of Egypt so that he can not only look after the world, but ensure the protection of the people of God. Joseph was a dreamer hearing from God and was raised up into the position because of it. This Joseph in our story, is receiving dreams because God is raising him up not to just watch over the people of God, but to watch over the Son of God and ensure that the Son of God is able to deliver the people of God. 
And it's interesting that in the Jewish culture, they really have two visions of Messiah. They have what they call Messiah ben Joseph, uh, the suffering servant. And they also have another Messiah figure, Messiah ben David, the conquering king. And in Jewish uh, culture, their understanding is that they are so profoundly unique that they believe there could actually be two different Messiahs rather than one. Because one comes to suffer and die for the sins of the people, the other comes to rule over Israel and usher in the messianic kingdom. What's interesting about what God is doing here in the life of Joseph, because of the work in Joseph's life, Jesus, now being adopted by Joseph, will become known by the people around him and their family, wherever they live, as Jesus ben Joseph. The the term ben literally means a son of. So now Jesus is Jesus, son of Joseph, who was also a son of David. So Jesus is now fulfilling Jesus, son of David. In the prophetic history of the scripture, we now have Jesus, who is called Christ, by Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian, calls him Christ. That is the Greek term or Latin term for Messiah. So Jesus is known as the Messiah, the son of Joseph, also the son of David. He has prophetically brought both messianic figures together simply through this adoption. So Jesus can fulfill the calling God put on his life. Now Mary was also from the tribe of Judah. Remember, you get your Jewishness from your mother. So it's important that she was Jewish as well. And so Mary was from the tribe of Judah who also descended from David. There's another genealogy for Jesus in Luke chapter 3. And this has puzzled scholars for for many years. The genealogy doesn't begin with Abraham like in the book of Matthew. It actually begins with Jesus and Mary. In Luke chapter 3, verse 23, it says, Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. Jesus was known as the son of Joseph. Joseph was the son of Heli. What's confusing about this is in Matthew, it says Joseph was the son of Jacob. So how can you be the son of Jacob and also the son of Heli? They didn't really do two dads back then like we do today. That, that, was, not, that was not accepted in their culture. So, how, so how, do you, how do you have two guys as your father? Well, it's interesting. In the uh, English Standard Version, uh, the translation reads a little differently, but it brings out more the original language. In Luke 3.23 in the ESV, It says, when Jesus began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed. Somebody say, as was supposed. As was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli. So, as was supposed is very important. That that phrase comes from a word meaning to do by law. So, Jesus was the son of Joseph by law, the father of Jesus, making him also the son of Heli. Now, many scholars believe that Heli was actually Mary's father. Because in the Torah, in the Old Testament, there is a law that when a father has no sons, but has a daughter, and he dies, that the tribal allotment, his inheritance, shall go to his daughter's husband if she marries within the same tribe. Therefore, the tribe, the property remains in the tribe, and the family's line can continue. So because there is a legal issue at hand, we see in this, this uh, scripture, what is most likely the plausible case is that Heli had no sons, 
And so in order to keep the family name and the inheritance passed down to Jesus, what the Annettes did was have him marry Mary Joseph so that Joseph could become the adopted son of Heli and carry on the family name. So now Joseph is both son of Jacob by blood and son of Heli by marriage. He's not simply delivered from the curse that says no one from his bloodline will sit on the throne of David. But Joseph is given a brand new family through the line of Mary and delivered from the stigma altogether. It's so beautiful to see God uses Joseph to save Mary's bloodline all the while using Mary to redeem Joseph's bloodline. The coming of Christ brought a redemption from the curse. And so profound to me that it looks like even in this, Joseph is delivered from the fear of not being successful or accepted in other people's eyes or looking good in the eyes of other people because whenever God shows up in his dreams, he does it a few different times. Every time he shows up, he tells Joseph to take his family and run, to go somewhere. So leave your home where you're at now and go to Bethlehem where Jesus will be born. Leave Bethlehem and go into Egypt. And then after Egypt, come back. Come back home. But, but don't go back to where you were. Go up into Galilee, into a little town called Nazareth. And by the time Jesus was grown, there had been a stigma placed on the town of Nazareth that said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But this is where God leads Joseph to raise his family. And Joseph doesn't think twice about it. And I think if you can imagine and put yourself in Joseph's place, God chose Joseph to watch over Jesus when his whole life Joseph had been asking God to watch over him. Can you imagine praying and asking God for blessing, for favor, for providence, for provision to watch over you, to protect you, and then one day God coming to you and say, will you do the same for me? I think he was searching for significance, but he wasn't really finding that and trying to overcome his family's reputation or overcoming the stigmas of the past. But I think he discovered there's nothing more significant than being known by God and knowing God and looking after Emmanuel, God in the flesh, and not just have a relationship with Jesus through dreams and visions, which is pretty cool, but having Jesus right there in front of him, the word of God right in front of your eyes. What's more significant than that privilege and responsibility? What matters more than watching over the king of kings to ensure he can fulfill his mission? So I think many of us are striving. We're striving for worldly success, striving for security, uh, either financially or maybe relationally. We want to be popular, accepted amongst our friends and amongst the people we want to be looked up to, respected, revered, because deep down we're fearful of what other people think about us. There's a fear of in, in inferiority. There's a fear of what other people think in our lives. And so we try to cover that 
We try to cover what we're ashamed of, what we're afraid will be exposed with what people can see on the outside, whether how we look or some kind of talent or something significant we can do. But what is more significant, beloved, than watching over God Almighty? What's more significant than the calling to watch over God Almighty? You see, when Jesus was in ministry and he was confronting religious people as he normally did, there was a day where he laid his hands on or spoke and cast out a demon out of a person who was infirmed. And these religious leaders came and were accusing him, saying, you know, you're only able to do that because you're casting out the devil by the power of the devil. They're, they're accusing him of using witchcraft in order to do his ministry. And Jesus says something very interesting to these religious leaders in Matthew 12, 32. He says, anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, either in this world or the world to come. This is what's called the unpardonable sin. Now, I know that the Holy Spirit is completely equal in essence, in power, in, in existence to the Father and the Son. He makes up the third member of the Godhead. He is completely God. There's, there's nothing lacking between the three. But it's interesting to me that both Jesus and the Father confirm, you can say whatever you want about Jesus. You can dog him all day and you can be forgiven. But you speak against the Spirit. And that's a different story. There's something about the Holy Spirit that the Father and the Son hold in very high regard. As if to be the more fragile of the three. So he needs protecting. Say whatever you want about Jesus, but watch what you say about the Holy Spirit. What happens here? And what Jesus is saying is that there is this high regard. And yet, God has not just sent the Spirit to live with man. but to live in all who believe. The Spirit of Christ dwells in all who believe. So it's not just Emmanuel, God with us, in Christ's case. It's God in us. So don't just try to relate to Joseph in a superficial way about the significance of watching over the Son of God, watching over Jesus. Because, beloved, you are in Joseph's place. You are in Joseph's place. Because if you know Christ and the Spirit of God lives in you, you have been entrusted by God to watch over the temple of the Holy Spirit, the very dwelling place of God to watch over and care for the vessel where the Spirit lives, ensuring that the Spirit of God can finish the work Jesus started when he came. So if you have a relationship with God, the Spirit lives in you, and you are living a life with more significance than any award, any accolade, any recognition, any wardrobe or outfit, more home or car or vehicle or mansion could ever give you. And what God has done 
in sending you the Holy Spirit is not save you simply from the shame of your past, including all your mistakes and many disgraces, and the curses passed down your family line, but God has put you into a new family, just like Joseph, into the family of God, and he has given you a new father, God himself. So you don't have to run from your past anymore. You simply, by walking in the Spirit and following Jesus, he'll lead you on a journey of incredible significance. You don't have to run or try to strive for the fact that you want to be better than your parents or your grandparents or overcome the fact that somebody hurt you when you were young and and you want to distance yourself from that pain. Your significance and your value doesn't come from what you can accomplish in your own strength. Your significance and your value comes from the one who's calling you to rise up out of your mess and into the relationship God's always intended for you to have. What I get out of Joseph's life, beloved, is just a simple understanding that we don't have to be afraid of the past behind us or the future ahead of us because God is in this. He's in your situation right now. No matter what you're facing, no matter what it is, He who is working all things, and I say all things, is working them together for your good. And as I was preparing this this week, just praying through what God would have to say, have me to say, I just believe that he laid this word on my heart for someone or maybe several of you in here or watching online. I believe this is from the Lord for someone today and that's this, don't be afraid of your current circumstances because what you're experiencing is a work of God and you can trust him to see you through. What did God tell Joseph through the angel? Don't be afraid of this situation because God is in it. And it's the same word he has for you. Whatever you're wrestling with, battling through, struggling with, don't be afraid because God is in it. And you can trust him to see you through. So beloved, today, what are you running from? What are you trying to hide? What don't you want people to know or see that's got you consumed with covering your shame? Because I believe just as in Joseph's life, Jesus wants to set you free today. To help you see that it's okay, whatever's in the past. Because with Jesus, you have a bright new future. As a new creation and following him, you're gonna discover your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. So today, it's time to stop running and it's time to start living like who you've always meant to be. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the life of Joseph. I thank you for the truths we can pull out of scripture and just the promises you give us. God, I thank you for that word that though we may feel like you are silent, you are never deaf. You know what's going on and you are working behind the scenes to work all things out for our good. God, give us the hope 
and the perseverance to stay faithful, to keep believing, to keep trusting, to keep moving forward. And I thank you for the grace, God, to get us through. That your power works best in our weaknesses. And God, I pray for those who are still trying to work out from underneath the stigmas of the past with their family line, the reputation, who are trying to strive to be better, to overcome. God, I just speak that word that there is nothing more significant than being a temple of the Holy Spirit, the very dwelling place of God Almighty. And I just pray, God, that your spirit would begin that healing work as you begin breaking off those curses of the past and setting us free to be who we've always meant to be in Christ Jesus. I thank you, God, that a man of insignificance was brought into incredible significance when Jesus came into his life. And I know, God, you have that for every person who calls on the name of the Lord to be saved. And so, Holy Spirit, I just ask you in this moment to begin setting people free, to begin drawing people. And I thank you, God, for the work that you're about to do. In Jesus' name, with every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. For just the next few moments, we're going to open the altar for a time of prayer. You invite the prayer team to come forward. If you are struggling with some stuff in your past that you're ready to break free from, I'm going to invite you to come and let us pray with you and pray over you. Maybe there's some stuff that's still eating your lunch and you just feel shame over over and over again. We're going to invite you to come. If you need to begin a relationship with Jesus, you want to put down religious thinking, religious mindsets, and embrace a true life in Christ, the Word of God says all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. God is going to do a work in your life. It's not about your religious routine. It's about your relationship with Jesus. So we're going to invite you to come. We'll be down here praying for the next few moments. And then when we're through, we'll... We'll dismiss. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you. 